0: Hello, I am José García Moreno, and I'll be your host for this episode. The overall purpose of this podcast is to capture people, their complex and rich identities, and show you who they are through their own stories. Our guests today share their unique experience with one common similarity. They all have Jewish heritage. Their faith isn't foreign to those working here, living here and studying at Loyola Marymount University and these conversations reveal that academia is at its best when tolerance meets with curiosity.
1: Hi my name is Zachary Zeisman. I am the campus rabbi and director of Jewish student life at Loyola Marymount University.
2: My name is Rebecca Gross. Um, I'm currently a graduate student and instructor at UC Santa Cruz. I Got my master's degree in English at LMU from 2019 to 2021 and worked with the Jewish Studies Department. as a graduate assistant.
3: My name is Rabbi Joshua Hoffman. I am the president and CEO of the Academy for Jewish Religion California. And we are uh, housed here. Our home is here on the Loyola Marymount campus. And I believe that our institution is under the provost's office and the School of Education.
4: My name is Robin Crabtree, PhD. I always like to say that. Uh, I am dean of the Bellarmine College of Liberal Arts, and I'm a tenured full professor in the Department of Women's and Gender Studies.
0: Transformational and Historical Ceremony, which actually took place at Roski Hall here in the LMU-Westchester campus, West L.A., and we actually celebrated the arrival of the Academy of Jewish Religion, California, and we are embracing you because this is a Catholic university founded in a Jesuit and Mount tradition, and we are embracing Judaism as a fundamental interreligious dialogue that he- that will help us understand and heal a fractured land. So it re- it's really enthusing for ACTI because one of its foundational purposes is the need for inclusion of the other by celebrating their stories in their own words. And that is why we're so happy to have you with us today in the ACTI Advocate podcast. So yesterday, actually, someone, and I think it was you, uh, mentioned the beauty of this place. And of of the Loyola Marymount campus. And I would like to start there because I think that there's a deeper significance to the sacramentality of a place. And the Romans actually had a term, uh, genus loci, which actually tries to define the nature of a place, the spirit of a place, right? So as we know from ancient recollections, cities were actually founded around the place of the temple, because it, it was thought that it would be an axis mundi, right? It was a, a symbolical representation of, of the creation of the world. And so not a place couldn't be just any place. And it is true that there is, in my personal perception about my relation with, uh, with Loyola Marymount University, that there's this amazing energy in, at Loyola Marymount University. And there is an energy that actually started long ago with the Tongva, Right with uh, the uh, the Native Americans, which actually found it, and found that this this place, this precise place, this geolocation had this uh, uh, was suitable for this sacramentality, this purpose of tra- sacramentality. So this is a place that I find that is uh, has been cultivated with such amazing grace through generations, and it's a beauty. And, and its beauty is actually a reflection of such care and love that has happened through the years. So now the Academy for Jewish Religion California has found its home in this Arcadia, in this original garden, right? This garden that heals by its mere presence in a way. So you have finally arrived to your new home. So please tell us about this journey and how you found this garden.
3: Wow, there was so much going on in what you just led in that introduction. And I hope that I can contain all of the joy in my response, because uh, every uh, every moment in which you express the uniqueness of this place and the uh, the particular contribution that a place can bring to the world and what it means to be situated in a place where it has the opportunity to radiate something into the world is precisely what i am communicating within our community and our school about what i see the academy for jewish religion california as a uh, as an institution that radiates light into the world and uh, and to know that we have situated ourselves in a place as you have described that has something unique uncommon and and, and it isn't just simply one that was uh, you know, founded by, uh, by, by wandering, um, Travelers in a world who uh, were looking for a home for themselves and found something that was suitable not only for um, sustainability of their lives but because there was some kind of like upward reaching some potential there uh, but that that has been actually transmitted throughout generations to ultimately found this school and what I believe is now the new chapter with our academy becoming a part of the uh, the specialness of this place, and in the Jewish tradition, um, as you it sort of referred to a little bit about kind of axis mundi and and really the the sort of central orienting spaces in in our identity, we have our temple in Jerusalem. That's really where we believe that heaven and earth intersect. Um, it really is an important place in the entire world, where a place has transcendent meaning sacramentality as as you had uh, used as a word Uh, we're also a people with a history that has um, experience of exile from that space and one of the most innovative and resilient acts of the jewish people was to define where to where to access sacred space when we no longer have these precious locations in the world and still find connection. So the rabbis, uh, who were the the innovators of this concept, transformed the temple as a structure into the home. And the home became what they called a mikdash me'at in Hebrew, a small sanctuary. And so everything that sustains Judaism that continues to sustain Judaism for thousands of years wasn 't a space itself what but it was all of the behavior that happens inside the home that enables us to encounter godliness in the world and and that has nourished us throughout millennia and uh, and so here we are in the 21st century, and we are also at a tremendous crossroads, where space has new definitions.
0: So Rebecca, we're living in a fractured world, which is often how we feel after we read the news or have day-to-day experiences. How does partnership between Jews and other religions create tolerance? How do you think literature and Jewish studies lay a foundation for healing?
2: Yeah, I love that question. I mean, um something that actually my my project that I'm hoping to do with my project is think about solidarity networks and think about how um you know, the black diaspora and the Jewish diaspora um can uh you know, where are kind of um the points of solidarity there? Um and and I'm also thinking about this in the context of you know things like um Israel, Palestine, and um between Jews and Arabs, right? Um and so I think that there's a lot of potential for not just literature but also culture, um whether that be like film, TV, Twitter, who knows um, to to bridge a lot of um what we see as really different experiences. Um, and that's not to, to invalidate or like say that those experiences are the same, like they're not the same. But um, I think what I've always loved about literature is it gives you a window into someone else's life, um, into someone else's experience. And I think um, it's easy to feel like there's nothing similar there, uh, nothing, uh, nothing I have in common with someone that like Grew up in a different country, is of a different gender, um, is of a different time period, right? But what, what is common there is obviously that human, that humanness. Um and so I, I think like in terms of Jewish studies and like what Jewish literature can do, um, I think when it's done well, uh, it recognizes Jewish oppression and um resilience, but it also um, finds a way to build bridges with other cultures um, that have experienced uh, oppression and hardship um, and exile. Um, because I don't think that's uniquely Jewish or or especially Jewish. I think that um, biblically, it, it maybe happened first, but um, we've seen it happen time and time again with other people. And that um, allows sort of real connection, I think, um, and real understanding to develop between, um, Jewish literature or, or really, you know, Jews and other people. Um, so, so that's sort of how I see Jewish studies as being, um, sort of a window into of potential, um, for solidarity and, um, and, and connection.
0: there's like uh this uh i think we were at the same event and uh there was uh all this talk about jewish jewish faith and reciprocity and how that translates into hospitality especially i'm i'm thinking about uh you know especially algerian philosopher jacques derrida and all the the meaning of hospitality but and uh and it's it's very interesting that you you talk about the intentionality of actually uh, looking for a Jesuit university, and how, in many ways, a lot of people actually refer to a, a Jesuit uh, oriented uh, or based uh, universities based on uh, Ignatian philosophy, that hospitality is a a major issue. So can I ask you, uh, from your point of view, what moments in LMU history uh, have demonstrated a commitment to including Judaism and how those decisions impact the school as we know it today?
4: I came to LMU less than a decade ago, and I think there are long-standing Commitments, uh, and I and I would say increasingly, I learn that the original land grant of LMU was a collaboration between Catholics and Jews in the area. The procurement of University Hall, where we sit right now, also had Catholic and Jewish organizations involved in some way. I know the Martin Gang Institute, and sometimes. It's contacts through those organizations, through the interfaith networks of people who work at LMU, that ends up creating opportunities. Uh, the Jewish Studies Program must be f- somewhere between 15 and 20 years old as, a, as an academic minor. And I think um, then-Dean Michael Eng. Uh, who was interested in, in that interfaith history, among other histories of Los Angeles, and Holly Levitsky, who had come to LMU as a literature professor with a specialization in not Holocaust literature, which is where she's evolved, um, but I think as uh, a Jewish faculty member who was offering course or two, you know, that became a natural alliance and a conversation that led to the founding of a minor in Jewish studies, which has been fabulously successful, not only with students of different backgrounds, but actually um, in community programming, Mm -hmm. um, in bringing interfaith conversations to LMU's campus, uh, in fundraising, and so on.
0: So, Rabbi Sack, you get to work with students over their whole time here at LMU, right? What are some of your fondest remembrances that reassure you that LMU is an excellent school for Jews and non-Catholics?
1: I mean, it speaks to a lot of things comes, comes up. It speaks to the, the connection and the history between Jews and Jesuits um, at LMU, um, but also in Los Angeles. So there's a long history um, of, of partnerships. Father Kasasa, I think um, one of the first presidents, if not the first presidents of LMU, had a, had a deep relationship with a rabbi in, in Los Angeles, Rabbi Magnum. Um, and I heard a story recently about the groundbreaking at, at LMU. I think it was not LMU at the time, it was Loyola University. We're talking over 100 years ago. Um, there's a delegation of rabbis at that groundbreaking that speaks to some of the connection um, between the university. So um, I, you know, I really feel uh, uh, supported. Not only is it the history that, that reassures me, um, I think of um, uh, recently we were able to go on a, 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 field, a field trip. It was a Holy Land pilgrimage, right? And it sounds, uh, the setup sounds a little bit like a joke. There were eight college students, uh, a rabbi, two Jesuit priests, a Muslim scholar, and we all got on a plane to go to Israel um, and and the, that, that it was exactly what it was. It was a, a, a holy land pilgrimage trip made up of students that represented um, all three Abrahamic faiths um, that you know went to, that had never been to Israel before. And we were going not on a sort of a political uh, trip, not to examine um, complexities of the land, but it was really to explore each other's faith and, and the pilgrimage. And it was it was such a, um, uh, a good example of, of LMU's commitment to not only the Jewish faith, but but sort of this inter, the idea of this interfaith work, um, you know, again, what I I think of as this encouragement of learning, not only for the Jesuit faith, right, but for uh, other faiths and and um, education of the whole person. Um, and it was a really, really beautiful way to encapsulate the mission, I think of LMU.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's I've been traveling all my life, lived in four countries, nomad in a way a little bit, and uh, this last trip to El Salvador just made sense in so many ways and uh, actually allowed me to uh, structure the importance of uh, spiritual immersion through traveling with the purpose of finding compassion. And compassion only comes if you actually suffer with the other.
4: I was thinking about just recently. I heard someone mention that lamentations is uh, not the part of the mass or the annual cycle of masses that is. It's it's one that's done less, and. I can't even remember what conversation I was in when I heard that, but I remember becoming aware of the term lamentation and lament in a kind of a new vibrancy, and that I've really been thinking about it ever since, and especially because we've come through so much loss that is very hard to even imagine the scale of millions of deaths worldwide to the global pandemic, Uh, and then the ways that other events during the time frame put us in mind of other senseless loss of life in kind of, uh, you know, also systematic plague-like ways. I was in El Salvador the first time in 19... 87, we spent time in a base Christian community, Mm -hmm. and I remember when I saw it on the travel agenda, I was ambivalent, and then the experience of it was very different than my expectations, Mm -hmm. and that exposure to liberation theology, as was being lived in those times, Mm -hmm. and of uh, communities who were, you know, del basso, I think, is, you know, the, the social base, but also, I think, you know, in the, in the path of Christ, in that sense, basic, you know. Uh, in those years, the Christian discourse in this country, I thought, was very hypocritical if for no other reason, because love was nowhere to be seen. Love and compassion were not the drive. The drive was judgment. The drive was exclusion. The drive was denying humanity to gays, to, you know, I mean, it was a very particular era, the 80s, around religion in this country. And so being shaped against religion, in a sense, during that time, and then going to a place in El Baso where uh, how people were living their lives seemed much more authentic to the faith. And then it's sort of like an eye-opener to say the... um, there's, well, there's another way of being Christian, and it's not the way I witness in the United States, where I think, you know, it's, it was hard to respect the, either the institutional church or those who were most claiming uh, work on behalf of the faith, uh, versus what I saw in the in the small communities in Central America.
0: What it was really fascinating for me is, uh, or at least. Uh, at least three experiences of of communities that we went and visited, and of course, you know the grace and hospitality of these communities is overwhelming. Uh, so, all of the immigration of uh, of the male population to the United States, uh, males being killed in the war, uh, the maras in 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 jail, and a lot of social activism now is being led by women, which is like a It's very comforting in a way because there's like this uh, connection to the earth, this eloquence, this love that is coming of all these uh, leaders in these small communities.
4: I think the faith is female and the future of the church is female. We have a lot of great faculty who are uh, doing work in this area. And um, I, I know you know them, but it is difficult to witness the world, you know. And I think about this this Ignatian concept of having your heart broken for the world by the world, encounter the gritty realities of the world, and and have your heart broken by the world, and then that is how you discover your vocation. Uh, you know, I think if we We do attract – and back to your earlier question about is this a a great institution where we give a great education. When I'm interviewing faculty, I see how uh, faculty come to their sense of vocation from a place of witnessing need, injustice, uh, opportunity to make a difference, and a desire to have an impact, a positive impact – uh, on both students, like a real belief in undergraduate education that I think is, is so admirable. And, um, and then impact oriented research for the, the social good, for the common good. And each of them have their, <clears throat> their narrative about how they came to attend to the gritty reality, that epiphany of that broken heart in all the beauty of that moment.
0: Uh, talking about being on the on the road uh, and I'll, I'll try to make uh, because this is something that really resonated with me uh, that is uh, the concept of as if and uh, so if I may I would like to apply again the idea of uh, how the past resonates in a place for years to come and uh, so I just for you to know I went to film school in Prague. And I'm married to a Czech, so uh, so I have deep family connections in Bohemia, and uh, and I'm a walker, so I just like walking, and uh, and I remember I knew that there was this place, and there was like this uh, terrible story associated with it, and I just found it by walking. I was not intentionally walking towards that destination. I was following the uh, a river, uh, the the Elbe or the Valtava, as the Czechs call it. And I found myself at Terezin. And Terezin, for those who do not know, is uh, is this uh, medieval town which the Nazis, uh, uh, when they occupied the Sudetenland, the north of Bohemia, used as a concentration camp. And when I came there, I I didn't know that that was Terezin, but there was like this sensation in my body and I'm not making this up, there was this chilling experience, and I came to this town, which was uh, still s- semi-abandoned, and it was a town without joy, uh, you know, in opposition as what you found here in a place like this, like Loyola Marymount University, almost like a, a radioactive, contaminated sort of Chernobyl, and the... Uh, like a mini black hole of the cosmos and how uh actions can actually suck out the energy for years to come, right? Like places like uh such as uh seen in the Czech Republic. So so I, I was uh I was thinking about uh your concept about as if in relation to slavery that you mentioned yesterday, so uh, which was like the, this great anecdote that still like uh, is resonated in my mind. So could you please share with us uh with our audience about this anecdote and the meaning of as if for uh for Judaism
3: when uh when I was uh privileged to give some remarks about the generosity of our welcome and and really I think um formalize this partnership that that we've been creating for now six years. Uh that um I I referred to a an essential piece of teaching, um, part of the Passover Seder um, ritual that uh, that we we recite, and it is um, the phrase is Behol Dor Vador Chayav Adam Lirot Et Atzmo Keilu Hu Mi Mitzrayim. Which translates in every generation, each person is obligated, it's an interesting word, obligated to look upon themselves as if, ki'ilu, as if they've been liberated from slavery in Egypt. And the concept of as if is really powerful on so many levels, especially in our multi-faith dialogue, because we are trying sometimes to identify and to concretize exactly what it is that we are um, seeking, searching for, and we, we look for certainty in our life. And part of the sort of Jewish narrative, which is this is a fundamental part of Jewish narrative, is for us to say, look, there is this thing that we've captured in, our, in the history and the narrative. Of us, of an experience of enslavement and and redemption, and year after year after year, generations later, we are we are to look upon ourselves as if we have experienced that that flavor of redemption, which is to say that we we know what it was like to experience enslavement on a whole variety of levels. There, it was a, a very um, you know practical, tactile, physical. Enslavement, but there are certainly spiritual, mental, and emotional enslavements that that plague the human spirit uh, even today. So the concept that we celebrate a freedom from that is um, it's it's a it's a moment of potential. It's it's not it's not a re- recollection or a reflection on what was. It's a moment of a potential of recapitulation of reorientation. And if we can reorient ourselves as constantly being imbued with the potential to make our ways towards freedom, uh, that's a, actually a pretty exciting orienting principle for us as identity. And that's what we celebrate through that. And I talked about how how what this partnership represents for us, for me, for us, is an, a, this kind of potential A quality to it, and so um, I I think we're going to look at the work that we're doing now as as if we have created not only a more tolerant world, um, but also one that is um, that is is bringing together the thinking and the hands and the the spirit of of a world that that wants to see healing. And and brokenness repaired. And um, and that's I I think we just sort of discovered that it's one of the sort of unintended consequences of what we're talking about here. And yet it seems like it's going to be the most fundamental work that we do is figure out how we're going to heal a fractured world together.
0: Rabbi Sack, you use a very interesting term when we spoke of line, and that term was Godversation. I'm a little curious about what is needed for Godversations to occur on campus, and have you ever seen it on campus first and foremost?
1: Well, I, a little bit of context. I was at a workshop recently that I, that did um, this workshop called Godversations, and it, it was really um, eye-opening in many, many ways. Uh, you know, it... it Uh, part of the conversation led me to understand that there are quite a bit of Jewish understandings and ideas of God, many of which that I am comfortable with and can sort of articulate and understand, and many that are are new to me and and that I'm excited to sort of explore and understand. Um, It also got me to understand that, you know, as many ideas and different ideas of Judaism about God uh, uh, exist... Um you could also point to an idea about God and say that is not a Jewish idea um which I, I think is equally powerful and also felt a little scary me scary to me to to articulate to someone or have a conversation where they're explaining their version of God. And for me to say to them, well, that's not Jewish, right? Felt a little bit um, like a a challenging conversation. Uh, Another important element of the workshop for me was uh, this invitation to explore your feelings about believers, right? There was a question that uh, the the rabbis, um, uh, the, the person who led the workshop was telling us a story about their best friend who came to them one day and said, you know, they didn't say rabbi; they called him by their best friend. But they said, "You know, I- I'm so confused that your whole career and life is based on a myth or based on a story." And this, the <laughs> the, the rabbi was really kind of surprised and had to think about it. And it and it invited her to think about her her thoughts and beliefs about believers, about those who believe. And then on the other on the other side is, um, you know, what are your beliefs and thoughts about non believers? Um, which to me was really also important. And, um, I found myself as a believer, someone who believes having stronger beliefs about believers or, 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 um, feelings about those who believe. And so I've found that interesting. And then, you know, there was a, a, another invitation to think about, um, what would you do if you found out you were wrong? And, you know, I think th- the conversation around God is so personal and so, um, expansive and challenging. And I find that our students just don't have, uh, or most most people, but particularly our students, uh, are lacking the language even um, to have that conversation. Uh, I, I remember when I used to have conversations in an interfaith space, um, I used to get very defensive. In fact, that was probably my go-to response was being defensive. Why? I think because I didn't have a very good command. Or understanding of my own faith, or what I believed in, so I was entering a conversation. You know, it was I was set up to fail, right? Because I was going in where I couldn't really talk about what I believed in, so it was easier to be defensive. And I think, the, the, you know, the opportunity to, like I said, increase literacy uh, to to explore conversations around God um, or other religious ideas, um, and then I, I think this is really important the, to understand that your best friend or good friend might have a fundamentally different idea than you, right? And that's really, this is where I think the challenge exists, right? For someone to have a fundamentally different idea about God than you um, and not be wrong and not be considered to be evil, right? You can have different beliefs about, uh, I don't know, prayer, uh, death penalty, uh, you know, Um, The list goes on and on and fundamentally have different beliefs uh, based in your religion and not be evil and not be wrong. Um, I think that is a really important lesson for students to learn. When I look around the country and see how divisive we are politically and religiously, you know, some argue that we haven't been this divisive since the Civil War you know, and and then you think about COVID and we're all in our own Zoom boxes and we're not interacting and we're not communicating. I think it's so important to have these honest conversations and to do them regularly and consistently, right? To have the uh, ongoing um, opportunities to practice, I think is really crucial.
0: Rebecca was an LMU student and is a doctoral candidate at UC Santa Cruz. So let's talk about Shabbat. God takes a step back from creation and then takes a pause, right? So there's this sacred pause. Can you elaborate on how the humanities and the English department mimic this idea with literature? Because literature may be the art you can put down. And this is obviously the case because you're getting a PhD, right? Right. But how are we inviting others to this sacred pause that you might be feeling? And which authors are on the cutting edge of this inclusivity?
2: I think the pause is really cool to think about. Um, And a lot of the progressive, uh, more secular Jewish, I I follow a lot of like secular Jewish um, publications, like Jewish Currents, for example. Um, and. you know like a lot of a lot of the discourse online on Fridays actually today's Friday right it's it's Shabbat tonight um and tomorrow and it's like um what is you know what are you reading this Shabbat and i love that because um traditionally in like an orthodox culture you wouldn't read on Shabbat um however i love that reading has become part of what secular jews do on Shabbat maybe you put down technology a little more but you take up um you take up that book right that you've been meaning to read all week um so I think there is a connection and I, sh- I shouldn't just say secular also you know uh, reform and conservative and, and other um Jewish uh traditions and denominations um do do read on Shabbat but um I just wanted to make it clear that that's it's not inherently part of the tradition you would just read the, the Torah traditionally um but I I think like for me um one thing that's that's amazing about reading a good book is it takes you into something else right I sort of mentioned that earlier is it um it can show you something entirely new uh that you would never otherwise know about um and so there's kind of this This connection there I think between like entering a new world and that gap or that that sort of built in gap in the week is um it should take you out of what the rest of the week is it should feel special it should feel like a holiday um every single week and so I think that there is like a a connection there I guess um in terms of who is right now on the cutting edge um I I just read a book by Lee Connell, um, called the party upstairs. And, um, she's, a um, a Jewish author, um, who writes about in this book specifically, um, a Jewish 20 something, uh, woman and, um, how she, you know, is having a hard time kind of finding steady employment post-college moves back with her parents and, um, Her dad is a superintendent in a building in the Upper West Side in New York, and he lives in the basement, and that's where she grew up, Um, but it's kind of this dialogue between father and daughter and him saying, you know, I wanted you to do, I wanted you to have better than what I have, but um, I don't want you to basically turn into a yuppie New Yorker who these are the people I work for, right? And so, um, and she's having that same dialogue herself. She's like, I thought you wanted better for me, but also I still feel connected to being the superintendent's daughter and to that working class lifestyle. Um, So I think that that's a really interesting approach to Jewish literature. Oftentimes Jewish literature is dealing with much larger concepts about like um, the rupture and exile and intergenerationality and, um, these authors are people like Dara Horn, uh, Nicole Krauss, um, Jonathan Safran Thor. These are just all contemporary Jewish authors. Um, and I love their work. It's like very postmodern and um, is reckoning with kind of life after the Holocaust and Jewishness uh, in the 21st century. Um, but I think what Lee Connell's work does that I'm really interested in all of a sudden is. It zooms in and it's saying something about um it, it's saying less about Jewishness and more sort of about maybe assimilation and how that relates to to class. Um and yeah, I'm I'm not fully processed on the Lee Connell book yet, but I would say maybe that's a cutting edge um, you know, uh 2020, 2021 um example of of where we're seeing Jewish literature go to some extent is, um, thinking about less about sort of these large scale ruptures and more about, um, interpersonal gaps and, uh, interpersonal sort of, um, in-, in class gaps, right. And, um, what it means to be, um, Jewish, but also what it means to be living in a literal basement in the upper West side. Right. So, um, I'm excited about, um, that type of literature. And I'm definitely seeking it out. So if anyone has recommendations, I would love them.
0: (laughs) To wrap up this beautiful conversation, this initial conversation that we're having, I just see, uh, you know, this beautiful, uh, path in front of us walking together having other interviews talking about things i would like to actually because we briefly talked before the interview about uh uh how important something is for both of us and that is the sacramentality of the arts and uh, the place that it, it it holds in uh you know spirituality and how important that is especially important for uh the academy of catholic thought and imagination which is i i think is not uh random that i was chosen to actually uh, take uh the direction of this academy because i'm an artist and i think that uh uh there's like this uh this this uh exp- this there must be this constant exploration on the importance of the arts in in uh being a companion to the spiritual growth so uh What is your uh, position in terms of uh, the sacramentality of the
3: arts? The Torah, the sort of beginning of the five books of Moses, the Bible, uh, talks about this sort of entity that is um, identified as as what we call God. um, And uh, creation unfolds through six days of work. And then on the seventh day, God steps back and admires all that has been created and every friday night as a, a jewish people we we gather together and we set we sanctify that time by calling it shabbat and in in the sanctification of that moment we not only do we uh literally reread those words every single week of saying six days was the world created and then it says at the end and and on the seventh day god rested so the word for god rested is vayinafash which is actually not rested at all but the word is vayinafash means um it it comes from the Hebrew word nefesh which means soul or or like re reinspired mm-hmm. um as as a breath of life kind of uh concept so so just as God takes a step back and looks at the canvas of creation and is va'inafash, so too are we as artists of the world that we are stewards of and in creation. We're we're now the the painters with the brushstrokes on the masterpiece of creation, and we are the artists who have the responsibility, the privilege, the very careful duty to paint the right breaststrokes to make a masterpiece of life. So a little secret of, of the word is that the re-inspiration is exactly what God needed after creation, maybe exhaustion, who knows what God feels, right? But uh, it was just enough to say art is the sacred pause. When you look in a mirror, you look at yourself. When you look at art, you see your soul. And the idea that we, as artists, we're we're artists of the spirit, that we are stepping back, taking an appreciation of all that's been created – seeing that there's a few places that need some polishing here and there, maybe different brushstrokes to sort of like blend colors into another new picture, but also maybe there's some blank space on the canvas that needs to be written. How wonderful it is to have friends standing side by side with you to figure out what we're gonna paint next. That's what I think we've got to do here. So, um, So let's get started. I produced this episode with Alex
0: Thurner. Alex also served as editor. We hope this episode builds bridges to Judaism in unique ways. The Academy of Catholic Thought and Imagination promotes coexistence and believes art can connect divergent communities everywhere. I am Jose Garcia Moreno. Thank you for listening. And please visit us often for the latest installment of Advocate and discover who we document on our show next.